This week on the In-Depth Podcast, my guest is Michael Render, better known by his stage name Killer Mike. The Atlanta-based rapper has worked with everyone from OutKast to Jay-Z and is currently one half of the hip-hop group Run the Jewels. In June, Mike released his first solo album in over a decade called Michael. I think what was so interesting getting into the interview with Mike in preparing for it is you realize being a professional musician is only a part of what he does. He is so well-versed about history, politics. He's able to articulate views on subject matter that's unlike almost anybody we've ever profiled in the 14 seasons of the show. We spent a day in Atlanta with Mike, where the rapper opens up about the deaths of his mom and grandma. She had told me my whole life that God exists. And um, her last act of being my mother was showing me that. Remembers his early days rap battling. They ended up just being me and daddy right. And then it was demolishment time. And shares insight into a potential future career move. And I'm just like, Governor, they was like, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? But we begin our conversation with one of Mike's most memorable moments from childhood. So your sister told me I should start the interview by asking you if you've ever been poisoned. Yeah, my sister Levy tried to poison me. When we were kids, I used to aggravate the out of her. It was, it was not right. I didn't have any brothers though, so you know. You're my wrestling partner. I'm Ric Flair, you're Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> she and one day she brought me a cup of water, which was strange. I'm like, oh, sister's not gonna bring me a cup. She doesn't even like me that much. You know what I'm saying? Even though I love I loved the ground all five my sisters worked on. But she had um, this like gray cup and I smelled it, it was like perfume in it. And she just looked at me, I looked at her and I just started chasing her through the house trying to kill her. Because <laughs> she tried to kill me. But you know, right now, man, my grandparents told us this, we were kids that you guys are all you each other have, so take care of each other. My, it's my sisters that constantly are checking up on me, making sure my soul, mind, spirit is good, and I, I appreciate her for it. What's this I hear about you once tying up a babysitter? So it was like a friend of my mom's was like a sister to her named Nell. She was, um, she was like younger than my mom, so a little more gullible on how manipulative kids can be. And I don't know if we wanted Kool-Aid or frost, we wanted something sweet that our grandparents didn't let us have. And she let us convince to, to play a game, which we tied her up, um, you know, like the old movies would do. And the only thing is we tied her up for real. <laughs> and we drank all the Kool-Aid we wanted to. We had to leave her tied for at least 15, 20 minutes. It was, it was crazy. It was three, three just little badass children. And how'd she handle that? She was mad as <laughs> To the point she just started laughing, like y'all got me. You yeah. won't get me again, but you got me this time. How did you get the name Skunk? Because I, my sister was standing in the door and I saw her standing in it and I slammed it and it, I didn't realize it was gonna hit her. I was just being a smart ass slamming the door and it hit her in the nose and my grandmother called me a low down skunk. And she called me that in front of my friends and they, were, they didn't stop calling me that. And then, then it just stuck. <laughs> it, it just, yeah, the, just the skunk part stuck. just stuck. Yeah, and, and skunk rhymes with a lot of stuff. So when you're a rapper, it made sense, you know? <laughs> this was just a story that I found funny. The role Playboy magazine played in my had. literacy. Yes. Yeah. Hey, man. You, you know, you, you say by any means necessary. My, my, there was, um, you know, 
my, <laughs> my non-bio dad was into comic books and toys. He still collects comic books and toys to this day. I do too. It's one of the great habits I picked up from him. He always encouraged it. There used to be this funky little bookstore. We would go and we'd, I'd be looking at Uncanny X-Men. He'd be there with me. I'd be looking at Batman. He'd be right there with me. And then he'd disappear. And I know he'd just disappear into the other section in the back. And he'd get what I was getting, but he'd have another bag with, you know, I was in a paper bag. You know, because adults know how to be discreet in front of kids. But I was a curious little like, what's that out there? And I remember after he and my mom had left, like popping, you know, popping one of his drawers open, seeing oh, it's a Playboy here. And I, I don't know if it was the Beasties or somebody, it was something may have been rap related in there. But I wanted to read the article. So I got a chance to see, you know, to see pretty girls and tits. But the, but the article is, is, what, is what kept me there. Like, and my mom, I, I just didn't got in the habit of whenever they went around, she caught me reading one. And she's like, you doing? I'm just like, I'm reading. And I start telling her what it's about. And she's looking like, like I know he managed. You know, that's a southern word for, you know, a little boy that's a little mischievous in terms. She was like, but he was reading. So, you know, she tells my dad. And, and my, uh, neither one of my dads were big on corporal punishment. I probably got a spanking from each of them once, you know. But that was a, that was a firm respect for my dad. So, because both of them were taller than me. I was like, this guy beat my ass. So I was just like, oh, man. I'm like, man, I finally made my dad enough to beat my ass. Like, and my, my mom said, well, he was reading. I, I can't get mad at that. And we know he liked girls. And, and that, was, that was the conversation. And it was just like, like, yo, I was like, that's it. Like, because I was reading and you know I liked this, I, I was just, I was a beast after that. I, and I think I just started, started hunching too early because my dad would just leave, like condoms just start showing up on the bathroom thing like, like the unacknowledged, like I know you out there being mischievous. And I ended up doing the same thing with my sons, my boys. I say, look, I'm not gonna ask you if you're having sex, this is what I'm gonna do. These are condoms, this is how you use them. If you're having sex, I expect you to use them. So you don't ever have to ever worry about me pressing. I just left my daughter in New York a few days ago. She was, um, uh, a friend of hers is up there. They were going out for dinner and stuff. I say, hey, this is in case you're, you're having sex. I'm going to give you these kind. Daddy, this is, I, I don't want to hear that. I'm not ready to be nobody's grandfather. So in case he don't bring and you should want to have sex, she's 25. This is, Daddy, why do you have sex? Why, uh, why do you have comes? Because we don't want to have no more children. I don't want another you. It was the most ridiculous conversation. But, you know, my, thank God that my dad gave me that example. Thank God because it has made me freer to talk to my children. But thank God for Playboy. Hugh Hefner had some great writers, just to be frank. And I, and I, you know, I still read Playboy, still read GQ. One of my favorite moments in rap is having Matt Zimbra be able to do the illustration, but be able to do a Playboy um, article about voting. That was one of my proudest moments to be in that magazine. I was talking to your sister, uh, Shonda, yesterday, and she was talking about how it wasn't until that she was a little older that she realized you guys grew up less fortunate financially yeah. because your grandparents impressed upon you God, education, and family. Absolutely. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. I'd always thought that, not that we were poor, I knew we were working class because I couldn't get Jordans. Like I could get, you know, <laughs> I could get some dunks. They were 39, 49 bucks or Fila's or phones, but I was getting Jordans. So I never thought we were rich. I knew we were, I knew we were well, though. I knew we were okay. They were able to give us a rich life. And, and that means what? What that means is my wife told me, you be talking about y'all around here, y'all was poor. Y'all weren't poor. My wife grew up in the housing projects in Savannah, Yamacraw Village. And she says to me, 
I don't care what you had materially, they gave you guys a rich life. A life where there were no expectations of not doing well. A life that, you know, the neighborhood they lived in was a mixed economy, black, all community, all black enclave, but everyone lived there from working class folks like us to some of the richest developers. So for me, I realized that we didn't have certain things financially because I was in the, in the age group where everything changed, mm. where people stopped wearing Pro Kids and Converse and started wearing Adidas and Puma and Nike became the king of all sneakers and Reebok was, you know, was right behind. So I knew that, but I never felt without. I never felt poor. And I'm, it doesn't amaze me that they, they didn't realize that because my grandparents did such a great job of taking care of us. Our, our cousins came to our house. My grandparents weren't with going out, spending the night out. So it'd be 10 kids in their house and everybody be fed and everybody be happy. And the richness of the experience was what we, what, you know, what, what enriched us versus having stuff. I'm told you guys were, you and your siblings were expected to work. Rain, sleep, yeah. snow. Yeah. What was involved with that? It was just, you had to develop a good work ethic. I, I hate it. I quit jobs and just told them, look, man, I'm wasting y'all time. But, but, but even as kids, you guys were yeah, I mean, but like you had cutting to grass, so. right? You had to cut grass. You had to go to the minister's garden and pick mint. I remember my grandmother taking us around. I'd have to cut the grass. It wasn't for free. About, yeah, for free. But because it wasn't for free. It was, it was an honorarium to the people that had made a place for us to grow up and have a rich life. We were never taught to believe it's free. Oh, no, this is what you owe. This is what you do for your community. It's not a free thing because you start to take that for granted. We understood that there's a reciprocal relationship within a community. Our grandmother helped us and our grandfather helped us understand that. And they didn't just say that, but you know, I asked my grandmother, you know, why are we going to the old folks home? You're a nurse, you get paid to do this. Why are you going up here doing this for free after church? And she looked at me, because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to take care of your neighbor. You know, she was a devout Christian. My grandfather, I thought was more agnostic until the last two years of his life. I was like, you actually, Believe in God? He's like, yeah, I believe in God. I just don't believe in preachers. <laughs> so, you know, I got a chance to understand that we had grew up with very Christ-like people in, in their will and want to make sure that others were well. And Sundays entailed what for you guys? Church, man. I, I, it would, there would be times I could convince my grandfather, I was just like, nah, not this Sunday. Don't do it. But, but morning till night, right? Church. We went to the Baptist church that we belonged to. My grandmother, she had quit listening to the blues and Stuff like, you know, she never was a partier and things. Her mother frowned upon those things. But, you know, when you're younger, you get out, go to a B.B. King concert, Little Rich, something like that. But she had, I realized later that she liked the Pentecostal churches for the same reason I did. It was the music. You know, it was, a, it was a, you know, the church we belonged to, belonged to the neighborhood we lived in in the Collier Heights. There were just good people there, good, solid people, more houses, teachers, and coaches. And um, so you, they didn't have, they had a great choir, but they didn't have a band. The other churches we go to have band, <laughs> and, and man, the same people who were playing in that club would be the next day in church playing, and man, they jammed. And, and there was a period of time where you were exploring other religions, mm -hmm. but it was still an expectation on your grandma's end that even if you weren't going to church, yeah, even if heard, I went to the mosque on Fridays, still... yeah, if I went to the mosque on Fridays and prayed, that was that was fine. But you were still going to church. Mm -hmm. My grandfather, I think, when I start questioning religion, I realized that my grandfather later he had done the same thing as a young man, and he 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 convinced her to go easier on me or let me stay with him. Sometimes we watch Clint Eastwood movies all day and kind of talk about talk about different religious leaders and his thoughts. So I got, I got a chance to push back mid-team. I, I did hear your grandma went a lot easier on you than she did your sisters. Yeah, I mean, you got to though. She, like, she would say, girls' problems come home <laughs> and cry like I did with my mother, you know? But I, I did have a lot more freedom, but 
I had I had the freedom because I had sisters and in the South, there's just a tradition of making sure girls are coveted and cared for mm-hmm. in a way that they don't get used and abused by the world. And boys, you kind of let get their things. You give them good advice, you counsel them, but boys, you allow to be earlier a little more adventurous. Tell about your attendance record from K through 12. I'd never saw the importance of getting to school on time. You know, by the time I got to high school, I was like, it'll be there when I get there. And I'm smart enough to catch up if I'm slacking. There was nothing more paramount than education. And my grandmother understood that if you marry the want and will to work hard with the want and will of education, that life would be easier for you. It did not mean that hardships won't come, but life will be easier for you, the more educated you are. And education isn't just simply about books, because at Tuskegee University, the bricks that built the buildings were, put to, were, were, were shaped and formed by the kids who, who were there. So they had technical knowledge as well, just in trade skills and things of that nature. So when you were growing up, there was a period of time where you got into a little bit of trouble. Uh, first, how did you start making money at 12 years old? I was mainly looking out for folks. Okay, elaborate. <laughs> so I'm, at, it's, I'm 1987, I'm 12 years old. The, the crack era starts. 84, 85-ish, there are older p- kids in this community, well, you know, they're young men that are telling the kids, well, the cops come, they're gonna look out, look out for them. If you see them, it used to be first they said, yeah, they would call a roller. So what you would call a trapper now would be a roller. The people were selling drugs, rollers, short for high rollers. They would have us stand on the top of hills. If you seen police coming in, they'd say, yell 99. And then that just got to be too long to yell. There used to be a show called Adam 12, right? It's a police show. When you see the police say 12, and you'd get 50, 100 bucks, you know what I mean? You sit, hang around with your friends, talk all day, you see police, 12, 12, 12, 12. And then you're like, well, the older boys, they're getting what they call a $1,000 bomb. They give you $1,000 worth of drugs already prepackaged. But you saw the older guys getting like, a thousand, you're like, you're getting $1,000? Like, they're getting 240 bucks per thousand. So essentially, the guys were selling, you know, for every $1,000 they made, they would be paid 240, 250. But they were paying the younger kids like 150 to 170 bucks. So me and one of my friends, we went to the, one of the guys who was, was fronting. Like, why are you underpaying us? And he couldn't give me a good reason. I said, so, I said, so look, just pay us. I said, we're not even going to tell the other boys, you know, what you're doing, the other 12, 13. We're not even going to tell them. we just saying, pay us a foul wage. Told me, me. You know, take it or leave it. And that was my first attempt to unionize the trap. <laughs> so because in my mind, because my grandfather had been a member of the union, my dad had been a teamster cousin. I was just like, this ain't fair. We're not getting paid equitable. So I'm taking these lessons that my grandparents and mom and grandma had taught me, and I'm taking them into situations where they shouldn't make sense. But to me, this was a labor dispute. And God told I said, all right, cool. I said, well, we'll, we'll take it. We can't argue with you. Next time he seen me, I was a rapper. I told him, F- you. <laughs> we never went back. We kept two grand of his money, maybe 2500 But my thing was, you weren't going to use me. How did trying something accidentally at the Foxy Lady impact? Oh, that almost killed me. That scared the shit out of me. So I'm at the, I'm at the Foxy Lady, which is now um, Club Rain. It's on Moreland Avenue. There was a guy from Florida smoking a blunt. Now, I wasn't really into marijuana, but I wanted to look cool. You know, my homeboy smoked and stuff, so I smoked a blunt with him in there. I didn't think this guy's from Florida. Florida just, they not known for great weed. So they, they smoke what they call bump. They put coke on their weed. And I, I hit it a few times, and I said, something is wrong. My heart felt like it was going to jump out of my body. I didn't realize I exposed myself to cocaine. I thought I was just smoking some dirt weed with a, with a Floridian just trying to be cool, because I'm, what, 15 years old, maybe? And... Uh, 
I got my man to get me out of there. I said, because I, I got spooked, I got paranoid. I said, I didn't understand that this is what cocaine does to you. And I remember going to the, the I think it was like an Exxon up the street and having to call my mom and she just laughed at me. She said, you was just geeked. And I'm like, what? Like, cause again, I think I'm dying. And she says, nah, she was like, the coke makes your heart rate go up. And that's what gives you the fit. You, and you're feeling paranoid because you didn't know what to expect. She said, you was just geek, son. And I put that in a, in a record too, and something for junkies. Well, it was one of the funniest, scariest conversations I've had, but that scared the out of me. How old were you when you started dealing and what would you say? Well, there was no, I, I have a decision to deal, I deal through high school. At the time, it was just a kid, it was convenient. If you needed to go to a dance and your, and your, your grandparents didn't understand your need for a tuxedo, you still had to get the 120 bucks. So it was just easy to say, well, let me, I, I know if I go grab um, a slab, I can go and I have this. So it was just a thing of convenience. By the time you walk to school, or you left school, you went to Martin Luther King to the pool hall. By the time you got to the pool hall, you were gonna get axed for, for coke, for crack, for something, seven, eight times. So it's, at a certain point, it was like, it just makes sense to have some on me. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like I decided, because if I would've done that, I wouldn't have taken time to love art the way I do. I wouldn't have taken time to be in the studio. It was just, if I needed, you know, it was convenient. It was gonna be a lot easier to get up that 220 bucks than working at Chuck E. Cheese for two weeks, which what, I also did. What'd your dad say? <laughs> My dad didn't know. I didn't know. I wasn't with. I, my mom didn't know at first. I just, my mom just picked up on my behavior. My dad's younger brother, Ant-Man knew. Like, Ant-Man knew, like, he was, like, I heard you he was on Martin Luther King because my uncle was pretty influential. You know what I mean? So people knew him. They tell him, you know, I saw your nephew up here. You know, you need to talk to him. You know, he needs to learn how to do this. He don't need to be on Front Street with them boys because them boys not going to go nowhere. Mm -hmm. Your nephew could go somewhere. And your so, dad's a cop. Yeah, well, he, at that time he had left. I think he was with the fire department at that okay. time before he went to the gas. But my dad is naturally a cop, just naturally, in, you know, intent on squarism and the right thing. Mm -hmm. So he was, um, I'm sure he was pissed at that to know, but he's never really discussed it with me till later till he, uh, he said, I understood it. What would happen with Red Dog? With Red Dogs? Yeah. They beat the shit out of me. Like, <laughs> Twice. Like, it, like it explained like the what Red that dogs is. Were, and, the Red Dogs are an acronym for running every drug dealer out of Georgia. They were like all the guys who didn't make it to D1 schools that were athletes that just became cops and they could run, they could jump, they could chase, they could race. And they were, I remember in Allen Temple, the old folks had got to complaining. They told us, you know, old folks complaining, stop, stop standing in this particular part. And, and, and cause, cause we don't want to get the calls from, we got real drug dealers to go catch. We, we trying to catch the people who giving y'all bombs. We not trying to really, and man, we didn't listen, and they pulled up on us one day, and they beat me out of my shoes. They didn't hit me in my head, they just swore, but when I tell you from my neck to my ankle, they beat me out of the shoes, <laughs> cut the shoes on us. I just remember laying there, they took all our drugs, and they just left, and I just remember laying there and just thinking how embarrassed my father would have been to have to come get me out of jail, how, how embarrassing it would have been to his former coworkers. I just, I had a talk and a thought with myself, just like, like if you're gonna do this, you can't do this, this ain't. This ain't the way. And the cops gave you a chance, you know what I mean? They, and so I never was mad at them for beating the out of me, even though it wasn't right. Absolutely wrong, you know what I mean? But I'm glad as hell from a street perspective, they didn't take me to jail, they just robbed me. How did your mom get into it? My mother, she was a child born in 59. She was a young woman in the, you know, the late 70s, early 80s. She partied and my mom co-owned a business called Drew Jeans, which is a floral business with a white woman from Marietta. And then the customers who were moms of athletes, the, the, you know, the, the daughters and, and wives of the people who were running businesses here would ask my mom, you know, you know where you can get coke? 
And my mom's like, actually, I do. I, I party in disco places. I, I, you know, I know all types of people. She was like, and then my mom's like, I saw there was money in it. And my mom left the, the business, started her own business, kept some of those customers, and just started supplying those customers. And then her and after my non-bio dad broke up, she started dating a guy who was a major trafficker. And my mom, I talked to him about a week or two ago, called. he said, your mom was the most fearless person I knew. Really? She said, we were, she said we were in Texas for a birthday and someone had lied to me in regardless of drugs or money and your mom tried to kill his ass. I seen someone try to, she was taking us to school on Monday, a guy tried to rob my mother. She was buying just, just a small amount of marijuana and a half because she knew the biggest marijuana dealer in the neighborhood. Sometimes they were friends, sometimes they were rivals, but the guy tried to rob her. I watched my mom stab his ass up. And then like, she took you to school. And then right she after. took us to school. And, and took us to school because the normalcy wasn't in that she was showing anything abnormal to us. It was in that you do not let yourself be taken advantage of. But mom had a great mind for how to do duplicitous things. And I woke up two weeks before my 15th birthday, woman, um, woman arrested for attempting to buy 10 kilos of cocaine in Griffin, Georgia. And my mother came home in two weeks. You know, shots out to, to Ralph. He took the charge. He was a good man to do what he did. I appreciate him always. Why'd you live with your grandparents? Because my grandmother um, was 44. My mother was 15 when she decided she was going to have a child. She was 16 when she'd had the child. My mother was like, I wanted her to have something that was her blood um, that, that she could raise if she so wanted to. And I think my grandmother was agreeable to that. Because my grandmother always said to me, um, you know, your mother could have gotten an abortion. She never let me, she never let me look at my mother in an unfavorable way. What makes your grandparents your heroes? I mean, just because they didn't have to do it. It's the middle of the crack here. And everything changed. And children start being thrown away as if they weren't needed. I remember my sisters and a cousin who's like a sister, they got smart with my grandmother for some reason. And she drove, there's an orphanage in our in community. It's a children's home. And she drove them there and said, well, get out. And they were like, what? She was like, yeah, get out. There's other places you can go. I don't have to do this. Could have rode in that RV by themselves and enjoyed Florida and the Gulf and, and, and drove it all the way over to Mississippi, Louisiana, going to casinos, and they didn't. They found time to do the casinos once every two or three months if they wanted to, but their primary focus was in making sure that three, three human beings, you know, and added my other cousins, four others, like seven kids on a daily, making sure that they feel poured into, that they know that they're strong, that they know that if the world turns its back on them, that they have one another. And, and that became their life's mission. So I don't, I don't know a better hero to have. Your grandma's passing. One of the more remarkable stories that I, I've heard in terms of like how it happened, almost beautiful in yeah. a way, yeah. Yeah, how you describe it. Uh, what happened? That was the day I absolutely, um, I absolutely believed in God. I questioned God since I was a child. Just the concept of God. Like, how could there be God when I'm looking at the peril that people, humans, have faced, you know? And my grandmother just wanted me to have a relationship with the Lord, as she would say. And I had, had Michael, who's now 16 years old, I think she was like four or five, we were going to her, her nursery on, for a Black History celebration for her to her great-grandmother and her mom and dad to see her. And her mom had gotten married. And I remember my grandmother saying, well, why don't you let him just adopt her? 
And I said, why would I let another man adopt? I ain't another man adopted my other three children. Why would I do that? Well, I mean, her mother's married now. Yeah, so I'm married too. So what are we, you know, we're not going to do that. And we went through a, uh, an exchange for like three, four minutes. And it hurt my feelings. I was angry. I was like, mama, you talking about? I used to encourage on her. And uh, she looked at me after seeing I was very passionate about being in my daughter's life and raising my life at the same time, trying to hammer out a career. And my grandmother understood in that moment that I wanted to be her father. I was going to do whatever I needed to do to be there, that it wasn't going to be like it was the prior nine years of my career. And she looks at me and she said something I never heard my grandmother say. Because usually if she hurt your feelings, she said, I beg your pardon. She said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. And we drove on to the, to the place and we got there and I was about to drive up the hill and the guy said, well, you can't drive up the hill. Uh, you have to park down here and walk up. And my grandmother walked daily. She do one and a half, three miles. She was, she was very active. So she was like, oh, I'll walk. I was like, no, Ma, I said, let me just take you up. I'll drop you off one minute. She was like, no, I'll walk. So I parked down as we were walking up. We got about halfway up the hill. She stopped. She turned around. She looked at me. She looked past me. She saw something. She looked back at me and smiled. She put her arms on me and she was gone. I tried CPR, which I successfully used CPR twice and saved two people's life by a lifetime. I was confident I could keep her going if somebody came up. And then I realized, no, she's, she's gone. And it was just me and her. And then it was me, her, and the presence of God. And it was just me. And uh, man, I never felt bad or like there was something that wasn't done or said because I understood that all my life she had been kind of training me for this moment. She had told us I could die. Y'all all y'all got. You gotta take care of yourself. She had told me my whole life that God exists. And um her last act of being my mother was showing me that. And I have not stopped being blessed since that day. Since she joined my ancestors, there's not a day that I don't recognize that there is something favorably good happening for me, in part because of her prayer and energy and what she put into me. So I don't take a day for granted. <laughs> there are days where I'm sadder than others. There's days where I don't wake up on the right side of the bed. There's days that extra time get added, but there's not a day I take for granted, thanks to Betty. Your mom felt it was unfair. Yeah. <laughs> your grandma passed in your arms and yeah. hers. Yeah. Uh, take me into that conversation and what oh, she said. Man, with me and Denise, we had, we had a few different relationships. We had a relationship with like, she was my mother, we had a relationship like I was her brother. And that was one of those, that was one of those. My mother wanted her mother to be as understanding and consoling, to have a softer side like she did. But if my mother had raised me solely, it would have been so soft, I would have been ruined. You think so? I know so. Because we were too much like brother and sister. Mm -hmm. you know, and she wanted to make me happy to the point I could manipulate whatever I wanted. And she wanted that, but her mother wasn't going to accept the same things that she would accept from us. You know, me telling my grandmother I wanted to be a rapper was insane. You know, me telling my mother that was like, <laughs> it. Literally, that's what you're gonna do. Now, she never put me in the studio or anything, but she never discouraged me. My grandmother was like, you can, you can learn how to wrap a box and get a tray. <laughs> you know, my grandmother had went through the spoiling of my mother to understand that 
material spoiling is not going to be as effective as giving these kids experiences and at being firm. You know, I, I remember asking her one time, like, why don't you tell us you love us? You know, just trying to give her one of those speeches you saw on TV. And I turned around and said, what? I feed you, don't I? You eat every day, you're chubby, you, you, you're obviously loved. I didn't ask that again, because I realized that was a dumbass question, because love is an action. It's not just something you say. After we would go to bed, my grandmother would come in and tuck us in and she'd kiss us and pray over us. And, and I, she didn't know I was up sometimes, but that's how I understood, oh, you are loved. And I understood that my mother needed more of that, I think, in some capacity, than her mother could give, and she didn't understand how to make sense of it all. And I think that she didn't understand um, that even though her mother didn't say it in that way, her mother adored her. Her mother adored my mom. And um, I'm glad that my mom had to bury her mother and not the other way around. I tell people all the time, man, I've been in love with two women my entire life. I ended up sometimes just in between two women fighting over what I should be doing. But I think that that's what's it, that I never saw Betty as anything but my mother. You know, I never saw her as a grandmother. I understood, but my mom, my mom told me something, man. She said, you don't understand now that that's my mama and I'm your mama and you're not gonna understand until I die the sacrifice I made. And I put that in my song, Motherless, because it's the truth. The day she died, I realized, oh, You know, it hurt me when my grandmother died. Oh, I cried, I still tearing up thinking about her. But man, Denise dying helped me understand I'm separated from the vessel in which God sent me through. And I, I have not been, I have not been right, you know, since, in a way, because I understood what Denise felt now, to, to not to be with the, 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 the God vessel that brings you here. You know, I was on a plane. I accepted a FaceTime call on a plane just to be able to see her as she was going. And, and, and Lord, I, I, I wish I could just talk to her and say, I get it. I get it. I get it because, you know, I stayed in Europe on company business for Run the Jewels. And um, I just wish I could have been there. You know? And I understand what she felt. And I'm empathetic. You know, if I see it right now, I tell her I'm sorry. I apologize. For what? For, for not understanding what was hurting you about you not being there with your mother when she died. I understand them. I get it. That's the amazing thing about parental wisdom. You know, their voices don't go anywhere. They're, they're, the, the lessons are still there. How do you handle them not being around today? I just, I um, pay a therapist a lot of money, I cry. <laughs> uh, I think how I handle things today is, I don't, I don't, I don't let the dark days consume me. <laughs> I make sure that my children are told and shown their love. I am much more family-centered than I have been. I understand that all my grandmother and mother and grandfather have been trying to do is shape me to be the leader of a tribe. My, my grandfather died 20 years ago. My sister LaShonda hugged me. She rubbed me on my back and she says, well, get it all out today because tomorrow you're the leader of this family. And I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to lead it. She said, don't worry, you'll grow into it. And over the last 20 years, that's what's happened. So you got into Morehouse on scholarship. Uh-huh. What happened? Man, I, the, the first year, I just, I was, 
it was a bit of culture shock. Like I, I enjoyed learning, I enjoyed the school. Dean Sterling over there was amazing, but I wanted something else. You know, I wanted something else. I, uh, I wanted to be a rapper and I let that get in the way of the opportunity that I had because I should have just stayed in Morehouse and I ended up getting a record deal around the same time I only ended up graduating anyway. So and you, yeah. you have regrets that you... Yeah, 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 I shouldn't have dropped out. Yeah, I should have stayed in school. Just, just because I didn't have to. Uh -huh. I, I did it because I thought it was a romantic thing to do. You know what I'm saying? Like Puffy had dropped out of Howard. We read, we read about that and I was just like, I just let my mind, I let my mind get too romanticized in the thought of, you know, leaving, leaving higher education to go accomplish this impossible dream. So when your grandma was dropping you off at Morehouse, apparently she said, you aren't Morehouse material. Yeah, but she didn't mean that. She would say stuff to challenge me because she knew I, she knew the best way to get Michael to do something is tell him he can't. Really? Yeah. You tell me I can't, I'm gonna figure out doing it. I, I remember telling my dad, telling Big Mike, I'm, I'm gonna leave Morehouse because I want to be an artist. And him saying to me, you know they call it broken art, uh, broke artists for, uh, starving artists for a reason. When he said to me, you know they call it starving artists for a reason, it just lit a fire under me. It lit, I, it lit the, I'm gonna show you. And that was a big part of Lynchfield. I'm just like, cause I could have went back the next year. Mm -hmm. Morehouse had made arrangements to say, okay, you were, you were a little crazy. You stopped paying attention in class. Your second semester wasn't as good as your first. We could, and I was like, Nah, I'm gonna show him. And a couple years ago, my dad calls me out of nowhere. He says, hey, I just read this article about you. I'm like, yes, sir. He's like, I described, they're describing you as a leader. He said, I wanna apologize. I said, apologize for what? I have a great relationship with both my dads. I said, what did we, what do you apologize? Cause I literally couldn't think. He said, I said to you one time, you know they still call the starving artists for a reason. And I know part of you took that as a, I didn't believe in you. And for the first time I said, yeah. I said, that, that, that hurt me right there. I said, I said but I, I don't regret it because it made me work harder. It made me understand that I had to work. I couldn't just say I want to be a rapper, it's going to happen. He said, but this article explains what I was really trying to say. And in the article he says, you know, I had seen from the time you were in nursery, I'd drop you off at nursery. And if me and the teacher stepped outside the door and peeked back in, you'd be telling the kids, okay, so this is what we're going to do and the kids would be paying attention to you and y'all would start to do it. And my dad said, I've seen you as a leader your entire life. And I didn't know as a working class kid who had lost his dad at 10 years old, as a kid who had helped to raise his two sisters and his two brothers and essentially was a husband of sight to his mother, he had never been able to break the ceiling. My father was intelligent enough, was disciplined enough to be anything, but he was a father to more than just his child, to his siblings. He was a, a son and a husband. To, he, he, he was limited. And what he was trying to tell me is that he saw me as a leader without limitations. Oh man, we cried like babies on the phone. Cause I didn't understand that the fuel that I was using, my dad doesn't believe, I'ma show him, it was the wrong fuel. And the fuel that he gave me in that conversation is what'll take me the rest of my life. Cause I have an expectation of making my father's proud, both of them. How did that conversation make you feel at the time? Oh man, it just, it, it, it made, it, I understood by then I had leadership capabilities and I'm a leader, but it absolutely assured me that this is who you are. This is not who you aspire to be. This is what God has made you. 
I didn't, I don't, you know, if I had my choice, man, I'd smoke marijuana every day, drive these expensive ass muscle cars, hang out in the blue flame and go to the bookstore with my daughter when she gets out of school and just talk about, you know, philosophy, whether that's Franz Fanon or Nietzsche, you know what I mean? Just what are we gonna talk about today? But I'm required to lead. That's what in part I'm put here to do. So I just understand that that's a big mission that's bigger than even my wants. Your sister told me it took you about four years after dropping out of Morehouse to kind of get your together. Yeah. And it, it, it wasn't really until you got a girl pregnant. Yeah. Uh, what changed there? Cause, because I was raised right. I don't, I don't have the ability to disconnect from my children. You know, having Anaya changed my life for the better. Having a daughter made me a more responsible man because I, I had to understand with Malika, Naya, Pony, and Mikey, um, I've made a contract with God. I've made a contract with the universe. I've made a contract with their mothers. I've made a contract with my tribe and my family. And this contract will not go unfulfilled. I am here for the rest of my life to be a father to you, to be a leader in this tribe, and to one day follow your leadership based on the things that I've put into you. And I understood that I have to make this happen. I put, I, I used money I made from the streets. I put her mother through beauty, beauty school. Instead of buying myself the car I wanted, I bought her the car she needed to make sure that she could get back and forth to school. I immediately got a townhouse for us to be in so that her child and her had their own place and did not have to be under the roof of other people. So it made me grow up. It's probably one of the best things that's ever happened for me. How has having the kids with different mothers impacted just family we, dynamics? We grew up like that. Say I have two fathers, Lovey and LaShonda's biological father is my dad too. Like literally, you know, there's, there's, there is no separating of love and friendship between Michael and Anthony. Those are my fathers and that, that does not change. You know, my grandfather told them when we were very young, um, have all his sisters together. Big Mike had three other daughters. My grandfather would tell, you know, my dad, Big Mike, bring your other girls here. All of his sisters need to know each other. One of the happiest things he would be about is knowing that as adults, they all know each other. They all congregate at my house. We're all together. You know, my, my family has been such a big and blended family my entire life. I don't know a different family. My house is, is, is big ass house and me and my wife are there and, and that's fine. But family is always welcome there because that's what you do when you, you, you lead a tribe of people. That's what I've seen my grandparents do. That's what I've seen my fathers do. You know, that's what I, it's what I am going to do till the day I die. You said in an interview once though, uh, you haven't always been the best father or partner to women you've had kids with. Yeah. Uh, why say that? I mean, not that I've been bad, but be the best. The best is for absolute, total concentration and focus on that. I have been chasing a dream for so long that it robbed the older three of opportunity to be with me in the way that I would like. Now, how so? Uh, because I wasn't, I wasn't there. Like I used to take a night to school every day. I take her to school, we stop and get an egg and cheese biscuit, we go to school. So when I got the record deal, I couldn't take her to school anymore. I wasn't here. I was on the road with outcasts. You know, Pony was, Pony was born after his mother miscarried another child. He was born while I was on the road. You know, I've been, I've been robbed of an opportunity to go to his football games and cheer him on. Mikey's stepfather was his football coach. You know, so I, and, and I had to let him know, hey man, if you're gonna, gonna be the stepfather of my child, me and you gonna have a relationship and you also coach my son. So we gonna have a coach, <laughs> the father relationship and a co-father relationship. Now they're divorced, he's out of the picture in that capacity now, but I still love and respect him for the job he did while he was there. I don't have the ability to, to not try to be the best. I just recognize that even at my best, 
I've had shortcomings. So it's not beating myself up too bad. I just, I wish I would have had the courage to say to the women, you know, either one or two things. Either I want all y'all at the same time or, 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 or maybe y'all not with that, so we need to figure out. And we got so, to that point. So that was gonna be my question. How do you view monogamy? I believe it's a choice. I don't believe it's natural. Um, that's what I, think. I think most people are polyamorous in some capacity. I've had a toxic relationship with, for years with the mother of two of my kids and we finally fixed it and I love her. I, I love her to death for giving me two of the greatest gifts I could ever give her for years uh, because of a court system in the way I wasn't or I didn't allow myself to. How'd you fix it? how we fix it? I just finally forgave and got over it. Um, I got rich. <laughs> no, no bullshit. Because at the time we went to court and the lie was told, I wasn't. And it put such a strain on me that it didn't allow me to understand that she's just under strain. It's just a move out of desperation. It's not honest, it's not truthful, but it's a desperation move. And I, under, I, I get it. Pony's 21, I never cut off child support. She'll probably get it the rest of her life. Why? Why not? I gave her two children. You know, she isn't able to, so I don't, I don't have a, the, 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 the money, the money, you know, it, it's not as important as her having stability and my children being stable. I just bought my daughter a house. It's being renovated for her right now. I bought her as a house that sits behind my neighbor's house that I grew up in. It's right behind my sister because fundamentally I'm that ground. But, you know, in terms of polyamory, I think it might be one of the only things that may save my community. You know, I've seen so many boyfriends who weren't the kid's father, if their fathers are gone or absent, that have been there. And if, if that man and those women can sit down and say, hey, well, you his girlfriend, I'm his girlfriend too, he's helping us, and we're as a team gonna do this, then I, I totally support that. Dr. King said something similar in, in one of his old writings. Um, you know, I don't think Coretta went for that. It's, you know, my wife may not either. But I, I do think that as, as open-minded as my family has been, I grew up with two gay uncles. Both my dad's younger brothers were gay. So getting, you know, I have a sister that's a lesbian. So my sister and my, my uncles, I got a chance to be so privileged to see, you know, love. And I've never not advocated for equality in that. And I think that at some point, uh, polygyny and polygamy are going to be the same in my communities and beyond. If you look at what happened in Utah and I think maybe another northeastern state, I think that you're going to see more of it. I don't know if I'll ever get, you know, to practice that. We'll see. We'll see. But <laughs> Your son's uh, kidney disease. Yeah. Um, how did you find out? When I look back on it, there were telltale signs of when he said his feet hurt, but he swole up once, and we didn't understand what was going on. Thought it was like an allergic reaction. Yeah, and, and, and it wasn't. It was his kidneys beginning to not work and his body retaining fluid. And I remember having to fly back from, um, from being on the road to be there when he um, first got his port, still on analysis. And his mom uh, thought it was important, and I thought it was important I'd be there because there's certain things just a dad should do. You know, when, when a mom on a day-to-day -day basis is there and doing her thing, when it gets tough, it's, it's, it's really time for dad to show up. And that doesn't mean dad can't be there every day or shouldn't be, but when it gets tough, as a father, you should be the one. I've had to stand there next to my baby boy and, and, and as he got administered the anesthetic and as a laughing gas, so it gives you a, almost like a feeling of laughing. And I remember, him starting to cry and me starting to cry and taking him in the operating room and the doctor's talking to me. But I, um, I just pray daily. And I got a call a few weeks ago that he's bumped up in the kidney transplant list that my child get an opportunity to live a full life as a young man. He's such a talented kid. He's, he's smart, he's observant, he thinks, he conserves. 
his thoughts is not just frivolous with him. He's a hell of a rapper and musician. I just want to see him get a chance to chase his dreams and glory because he really wants to. And um, it, was, know, it was hard on you for absolutely. a while. It was brutal. Still not easy, you know, because, you know, you want to wave a wand and fix it. But I read, you know, Warren Buffett talking about, you know, and Warren Buffett is a very, very rich man. But he talked about how there's just certain things you can't control. You just have to accept them. And you don't waste time feeling bad. So, you know, we figured out a way to travel with Pony before we go places now. We found out where the dialysis centers are. Still did the daddy kid vacation. Going to do more of that. Finding a way to get him. He wants to go to Jamaica. We're about to get him over there. So, you know, God is good in that. I've been afforded a lifestyle in which I can afford the burden I've been given. And um, I just want for my child to get that kidney and to, and to and just be free as a bird. What did going through it with your mom teach you? Um, my mom was in part by choice because of hypertension and drug usage and probably some predisposition to kidney disease. You think it's genetic? I, I think in part. I think okay. it skipped. I think I got lucky and uh -huh. my kid, unfortunately, because he and his younger sister got asthma from me. I've always felt guilty about that. But I, uh, what I learned from my mom is that it doesn't stop your life. That girl lived 17, 18 years after she was diagnosed. And she didn't always live an easy life. You know, Denise could be fiery. And I learned that it was possible to really live. And so I've never given up, not even hope, that determination that he's gonna live. Like, you wanna rap? Get your ass in the studio. So I've never looked at him as helpless or hopeless. And I remain hope-filled because of my mother. You alluded to him getting moved up on the, the list. Where do you things stand today? I think he goes back in about two or three weeks. Okay. And the doctors will give us some update. But that was the call that we got. His mom called me while I was thinking in New York rehearsing. Like, just calling with some good news. Ponies got bumped up on the list. And I called him to have a talk with him about his marijuana usage. And, um, you know, if you're going fast, you should slow it down. And if you slow down, you should know it down. Let's make sure you're clean going in there. Your early rap days. Yeah. We were talking about this briefly before the interview, but the box fans, your sisters as your hype men yeah. <laughs> and the remote control. Take yeah. it from there. Oh, man, that was it. Like, you, the remote became the microphone. My sisters were part of the reason I had a rich musical vocabulary because girls like melody and harmony. So they got me into Bone Thugs and Harmony. I remember LaShonda getting me my Mary J. Blige tape as a birthday gift and stuff like that. So they were always enthusiastic and supportive. My grandmother had this huge, like, picture window that you could just see into her house, and there was this huge mirror there, and that mirror was the audience. And that picture window was where, you know, friends and stuff might come and see you. But, man, I just, I just thank those girls for believing in me. You know, if, you're, if, your sister, if you're a brother and your sister's believing you, that ain't nothing impossible. You know what I mean? You, ain't nothing impossible. You got the, I mean, you got, you've got built-in cheerleaders. <laughs> well, I was going to say, from what I understand, they didn't have much of a choice in nah, participating. <laughs> 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 uh, Daddy Ray and the Eight Mile-esque battle. Um, oh, man, I hated Daddy Ray. God bless the dead, man. Oh, man, he made me sick. But I learned so much from him. How so? He just had his shit together, man. He was, what's my name? The whole crowd, Daddy Ray. What's my name? I'm just like, this lame-ass And And part of me was really just like... Like, he was good. Pushed you to be better? Yeah, pushed me to be I learned. I, I walked away from there understanding the importance of showmanship. So there's no way that I can really just cut Daddy Ray off at the knees with the showmanship. He got showmanship of Big Daddy Kane, dance moves of MC Hammer, and he got this call and response, which I did pick up from. So I, in the battle, first couple rounds, we neck and neck, but he always break out that, what's my name? Daddy Ray. And I said, you can't defeat him going at him. It's not going to work. So I looked at all the eight guys around him 
and I found a weakness and I got his ass. You know, what'd you do? He a sucker, I say. And who he a sucker for? I need everybody from Doug. Daddy Ray. By the time I had finished picking off those seven, eight guys around him, they were ashamed to stand next to him. Because I was saying, you a lame. You a flunky for him. Yo, you a junkie for him. Look at you, you in a tree. You a monkey for him. Ooh, you get to say that. Don't nobody want to stand next to Daddy Ray. It ended up just being me and Daddy Ray. And then it was demolishment time. Because I ain't know what's my name. No, it's just lyrics now. It's just me and you. And I'm going to tear your ass a new one. And that's what I did. And me and Daddy Ray never bowed no more. Mostly because I didn't want no more Daddy Ray. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was like, this motherfucker may put on this whole stage play production. But that taught me to be like water. To don't get so concrete in my... It taught me that I had to understand how to adjust and on the moment and on the fly. What happened where you almost quit and gave up rapping altogether? I've thought about it a few times. I got the, the dream I'd always wanted. I became a rapper. Um, I had an amazing situation in that, being signed to Outkast and being given the freedom to do what I wanted, but I didn't have the understanding and the guidance from day one to be, you know, to even know what I wanted to be. I was running from whatever it was I thought, you know, was going to catch up with me by way of the streets. I was, I was, you know, trying to see if I was just going to just be an organizer or if I was going to, what I was going to do, but what I didn't want to do was keep chasing the dream. I was just ready to be done with it, and I saw after I made Pledge 3, a Rolling Stone article that named my song Ric Flair as one of the top 50 songs of that year. And I can just remember just like, don't quit. But I had to understand that with that record, Ric Flair, it was a, it was a peek into what could be. Because I didn't have a publicist at Rolling Stone. Somebody organically was a Killer Mike fan and put my... Jason DeMarco comes from the Cartoon Network. He's vice president over there. Um, they had given the Witch Doctor of the Dungeon Family an opportunity to make an album. They gave them a pretty nice size budget. Album didn't do well. They came back and said, we're going to bring William Streets back. We're not going to come with the nice size budgets, but we're going to get you budgeted in that you can make a solo album. The only thing I requested of you is that you go back to being Killer Mike, not Mike Bigger, and you fully just be yourself. And 11 years ago, that record released, and it was called Rap Music, and it changed the trajectory. It was that my grandmother dying and go on to be with my ancestors and whatever prayers and energy she left here for me has propelled me the last 11, 12 years. And I can't quit now. There's no way in the world I would because I understand that this is my purpose. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, there are other things that come with the job. I got the dream job. I got everything I ever wanted as a kid. I got to wear polo and Nikes. I, you know what I mean? I get to drive the, the cars I looked up to as a kid. But there's a social responsibility I've realized that my blessing comes with. And my platform as a rapper is beyond me and self-engrandizing and more about now that I've done that and as a rapper, my ego is this big and I get a chance to live all those dreams that I lived in my grandmother's mirror with my sisters being made to make chili for me. I understand that that comes with what the other part my grandparents linked me to and that's to be on a hyper-local level, a friend, um, of those in need, a hero to those that, that need hope, you know, and remain hope-filled in spite of all odds, and to share that with others. How about the pros and cons of remaining independent? Well, the pros of remaining independent is you don't have to ask as much permission. The cons is you never have enough money to do the vision as much as you want or as big as you want, which is why partnering with Loma Vista, my company, Villains, Partnering with Loma Vista has been one of the best decisions I've made. I've been with the super big companies. Um, in that, I was with Columbia Records. And I've been overlooked, overshadowed. The same people that came up to me maybe a year ago, like, man, I remember thinking, you couldn't do it because your name was Killer Mike. They never let you. I say, yeah, too bad the guys who managed the killers never thought that. <laughs> you know, because they're a pretty hot band. <laughs> and, um, 
You know, I, I'd be more afraid of four white guys saying I'm the killers than one black guy. <laughs> killer white. But it was hilarious when I, because we both had a good laugh about it. I say, but you can't help you didn't believe. You know, you were at a big company and they told you it couldn't. I say, but I never stopped. I understand, though, there are deals you regret having not taken because of the impact it could have had on your mom and grandma. Yeah, but, but with that said, I don't have any regrets now because I don't, you know, you never know how those deals could have went. What I know is most rappers don't have 20-year careers. And people have watched me climb this mountain, and I've gotten to the top of this peak, and I've realized something. If you turn around, you look around the peak, there are higher mountains. The only thing is you got to climb back down into the valley and climb back up. And I was left with a decision to make. Run the Jewels is an amazing peak. And if I stayed there and satisfied there and not committed myself to giving people the origin story of the character Killer Mike, I wouldn't have found this other peak. So um, I don't have any regrets now because I've realized that part of this design is not mine. That, there's, that there is there's something predestined for me. Now, I know I have a purpose, but I don't know what that purpose is. I know I'm on a journey, but I don't know where it's going, but I know those things. Jay-Z, uh, what did he say about your album? Oh, man, he loved it. He, he, he said it was like, it was a hell of a compliment. It was, it was prior to mixing. So he was saying, you know, essentially just bring some of the levels up in terms of the hooks and stuff so they could be bigger. And I was like, okay, appreciate that critique. We was on that already. And, and how did you connect with him about it? So when, when he... And Outkast were just dominating. Um, they did some music together and like two, three records. And he actually hits Big and says he wants me on a record called Poppin' Tags. And, and Big at the time was like, well, you know, I don't know if Dre rapper. And he was like, no, 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 I'm not calling about Dre. I'm calling about the young boy y'all got over there, that boy Killer Mike. And I was in MTV and he was walking by. And of course, there was just a crowd of people around him. It's Jay-Z in the building. And he walked right past me and I didn't want to bother. And he stopped. He said, oh, man, you're not even going to speak to me? I put your back. And that's when I was we're like, oh, like, you really are cool. Like, this, he was like, yeah, he was like, I put you on my records, you gotta speak. So, we've never gotten disconnected from friendly banter and conversation. A few years ago, though, as I was working, I just, you know, I had, had his number and I just used it. Like, hey, man, I want, wouldn't mind you hearing some stuff. My manager, Will, drove me over there. Will is, is a fan of the Prius. And um, Jay made him park his car outside the gate, made him move his car. So, it was, <laughs> it was hilarious. We still joke about it. But I, um, but whole, you know, he, he, he encouraged me. He listened to the record. Uh, I said, if you feel something you want to jump on, let me know. If not, just give me some advice. But the greatest compliment I got is he said, I feel like I went to my cousin's house and got to watch a movie. Because everyone knows you can do stuff at your cousin's house. You can't. My mom was that cousin. When you came to Denise's house, the kids got to drink Kool-Aid. They got to eat Frosted Flakes. They got to watch movies on HBO. Like, it, my grandparents, there was none of that. <laughs> you know I mean, there was, there was none of that. I, um, so when he, when he said that, it, it, it gave me a feeling of relief, like mission accomplished, because I wanted people to, to hear something, but it's audio movie. It really is something, it is a coming of age story for you to see in your imagination, you know? And uh, so I, I just appreciate him for taking the time and, and giving the encouragement, I really do. And he's, he's a person I really respect. What, what do you respect about him? What do I respect about Jay-Z? He figured out getting out. And he understood a teamwork. So in every phase of Jay-Z, there has been a lesson. His first lesson is in, if every door to you gets closed, do it on your own. And he, Dame, and Kareem did it with Rockefeller Records on their own. After you do it on your own and dominate, do not be afraid to credit the team. And they showed an outpouring of love for, for not only doing good business, but for creating other leaders. If you look at now, 
man, what the guys who were there have been able to do on their own, you can see that leadership is something that was encouraged and fostered there. And then he did what Magic Johnson has did. He realized, hey, my celebrity and, and Shaq too is worth something. And let me take this out into the marketplace and let me influence the marketplace, but not only for the benefit of what company is hiring me, but to build my own companies. And I think that that's amazing. I think that's an example. And I think you don't have to know how to sing and dance to do that. I think that it's very much possible, more possible for the average black man and woman in Atlanta to be Jay-Z the business person than even Jay-Z the artist. And I would like for us to follow that. Dave Chappelle. Yes. Uh, how did the two of you first connect? Dave is someone I've always admired and looked up to. Dave gave me a chance doing my first album, you know, um, Monster, to be on his show. So I was on the Chappelle show. And we've just grown a friendship over the years. I'm, I think Dave is one of the most intelligent, proudly, um, unapologetically black men. He forces me to think, you know, and it's not always comfortable. And I, and I love that. We went to one of his shows and he gave me a speech about running for governor of the state. Mm -hmm. I was like, I can't run for governor. What, what, what did he say? He was like, you need to run for governor. And I'm like, no, I do not. You know what, I mean? what was his reasoning? His reasoning was because for what, 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 uh, I'm honest. You know, I said, Dave, I still like smoking weed. I go to the front. He said, we don't give a Nobody cares. We care that you're honest and you have integrity. We don't have to wonder who you are. We already know who you are and we can accept that. <laughs> and the funny thing is not only Dave has said that, there are much more famous rappers in this state. Many more rappers who've had some type of social influence, and yet when it's time to call a rapper for, not even a rapper, when it's trying to call a person who's entertaining and, and, and entertainment and in business, Governor Brian Kemp calls me. And I end up being the closer to that meeting to say to people, this is wrong, this is right, this is what we need, this is what this one can do. That means that my wisdom and intelligence is respected beyond my ability to sing and dance. And that's what Dave is really saying to me. So why did you tell him you didn't want to do it? Because I, I like smoking marijuana, going to the blue flag. You can't do that when you're the governor. What, why not? <laughs> you can't. You, you sure? Can't. I, just, I, would, I, would, I would suspend that for four years. For four years, I probably wouldn't. You know, for four years, because I, I take the job seriously. You got people, you know, maybe on 420. But I, I, think that, I think that when it's time for me to go in politics will be no sooner than 10 years. I've tried to run from it for years, but my wife says, yeah, you're going to. Because you get aggravated, you start yelling at TV. Your sister says she wants you to go into politics, but she doesn't think you ever will. Yeah, I, but, yeah because she knows I detest what politicians have done in selling us out. But... If you run for a small enough seat, you can make a bigger impact. Chief Judge Asha Jackson has been my friend since we were 11 years old. Chief Judge Asha Jackson, while on the brink of homelessness when we were seniors, encouraged all the boys that she knew were capable to go to college, to go to trade school. Chief Judge Asha Jackson started the Pinnacle Program that allows people, instead of going to jail for one or two years, to have a year to redeem themselves through trades, jobs, skills, education, and to come out on the other side of that better. If Chief Judge Asha Jackson can do that, I'm gonna always advocate for her to hold that seat. I understand how big a little office can be. So at some point I know I'm gonna be compelled to because after I do this 10 more years, after I've achieved the things in music and business I wanna achieve and I'm just worried about do I get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and are we gonna to tour for a month or two this year, I'm not gonna be able to sit still. I think if I run, I'm probably gonna be compelled on a local level to run for city council of some sort or school board. When I tell people that, they're like, nah, you're going to run for state rep, mayor, or governor. And I'm just like, governor? They're like, what are you waiting on? Well, what are you waiting on? I, well, right now, I got to get rich. 
<laughs> I want to be. Un, I don't. I don't want to be bribable. I, I don't want to be a. a I, I mean, rich is relative. You're yeah. rich compared to 99.9 percent of the world. <laughs> yeah, but I still got to pay some bills. I, I like to be not worried about the bills, Rich. How would you best explain the Brian Kemp criticism that you received? How do I best explain it? Well, I can't explain why people are critiquing me because I don't understand it. I understand that people feel as though politics is the Dallas Cowboys versus the Washington, you know, now commanders or former Redskins, but that's not what politics is. I grew up in an all-black neighborhood, in an all-black enclave with different black people of different economic class. I grew up with black Republicans around me and black Democrats. I grew up with black conservatives and black liberals. Hell, my grandmother and mother were radically different in terms of the political spectrum. My grandfather was probably more of a libertarian. What I understand is that politics is pragmatism. I want to know what you can do for me on a very local level in this community. I care about the 10 people to my left and my right in terms of their first and foremost. I got to make sure I street right. And then how does it affect the bigger neighborhood and the bigger community? My relationship with Kemp is no matter how you want to feel about him personally as a black person, the fact of the matter is nine new corporations have come to Georgia, 9,000 new jobs. There are 16,000 currently jobs now at the leader of Piedmont Hospital. If we can invest in high schools right now and raise you know, the next five classes of high school graduates directly into nursing centers, have them get their associates when they come out of high school, go into a four-year degree and, and, and get bumped up, we would love to be a part of doing that. When you hear Home Depot say, we don't have enough contractors, we are now starting a program in which we want to train middle schoolers to high schoolers up to be to great paying jobs, whether it's laying floors or building or electrician. These jobs are started at 70, 80, 90 grand a year and better. When you look at Georgia Youth Bill, teaching kids not only to get their GEDs, but teach kids trades are gonna be paying $70,000 coming out the gate. That's what our governor supports. Why wouldn't I support that? I don't care ideologically what, you know, what, what differences I have with anyone. If I can sit across and we can make Georgia a better, more effective state for the worker class, the worker class is the reason I'm here. Why wouldn't I want to continue that? So for me, if Brian Kemp is the person to continue that, then that's, I have to support that because I'm not supporting Brian Kemp, the personal personality. I'm supporting Brian Kemp, the policymaker. Why didn't you support Hillary Clinton? I just don't believe in her leadership. Even when Trump was the alternative? The only question where he didn't. Why? I, I just don't. I, I've not. I've look. Okay, Libya. Who was Secretary of State when we went into Libya? Uh, Hillary Clinton. Who's the president? Barack Obama. Yeah. What happened after Libya fell? Slavery got reinstituted. What did those people look like? Me. What did the people who over them look like? They look like Arabs. So how could I support someone who was at the helm of leadership when? when a country failed simply because a leader was about to take their currency to gold, which would have been competitive, not have been good for my country. But I can't, I can't support it. I just can't. Black people endure an unacknowledged Holocaust. Black people endure unacknowledged apartheid. Black people endure that we live in an empire in which we profit off the pillage of other people and we keep it so tucked in. We keep it in our gut, we keep it in our head, we keep it in our heart. We die earlier from it. We don't know what to say to, for it, or against it. And there's just some stuff that I'm just not gonna deal with. Vernon Jordan was a friend to the Clintons, hero. John Hope Bryant, friend to the Clintons, absolute hero of mine. I just didn't, I just didn't believe in that leadership. I just, I don't believe in the current leadership.
That doesn't mean I believe in the other guy. Just means I don't believe in you. So just your party needs to give me a better version of what you want to see. I didn't vote for Trump, but you know, did we go to war under him? No. Was the economy better? What were the interest rates on the house when he was president? Oh, the interest rates. Yeah, I'm just saying. Just that's all. That's all I'm saying. I'm not. Then, I'm just saying. You can say the, whose fault it was. There are pros and cons. Yeah, there are pros and cons of every United policy, States. Yeah. Guess what? Black people get from every U.S. president a con. Jimmy Carter supported more unfair drug laws because he didn't know what else to do. He didn't have an addict telling him. Maybe he didn't listen to his brother who drank. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. No president is perfect. Right. That just person just wasn't perfect for me. Doesn't mean Trump was. Just means you weren't perfect for me. Mm-hmm. I thought Bernie Sanders should be our president. You want the truth? That's it. That's just the truth. Yeah. Why didn't you vote Hillary? Because I voted Bernie. <laughs> well, yeah, but it, I mean, it got to a point where it was well, either so going to be Hillary so, or yeah, Trump. Yeah, it gets to a point where I get the fine stripper or the fat stripper. If the fine <laughs> stripper can't dance, I don't want the fat one. <laughs> That's I just won't be getting the dance right now. <laughs> but Sanders, his campaign left trickled through it it got into other campaigns. And, and you pe- first had a meal with him at a soul food restaurant. Yeah, we had at Busy Bees. First I interviewed him, much like this, in one of our barbershops at the Swag Shop on Edgewood. And then we went to Busy Bees. He got baked chicken instead of fried chicken. I always thought he should have got the fried. <laughs> yeah. What did you like about his policy? Sanders was just very forthcoming and very honest. And he was honest in the stuff we agreed upon and then honest in the stuff we didn't agree upon. And that was refreshing because I had only really saw that out of local politicians. I had not seen that out of national politicians, especially ones running for president. And I was amazed at the way that he got people who did not look alike to be in the same room agreeing to the bigger truth that was better for them all. There have been very few people in my life I've seen do that. You know, I've seen Dr. King do that from old film. I saw Fred Hampton do that from old film. I saw different city council people do that here, you know, in state reps. But seeing Sanders do that, to want to really unify this country beyond, you know, class, beyond race, you know, beyond ethnicities, I think, you know, I, th- I just think that we, we lost an amazing opportunity in having him for president. And, you know, if, if we're going to be talking about president, I would encourage people to listen to the people who were on his campaign, whether it was Teslin Figaro, who was an amazing outreach um, director for him. I'd encourage people to look at Cornell West, who's running as a third party candidate. Not so much that I think Dr. West is going to take the presidency as much as he's going to give you to think about and I never thought of that you would not have. Like in terms of should we be invading other countries? Who should we be, be leaning toward helping in other places? So I think he has an interesting view because he's, he's a minister. And ultimately, um, a Kennedy has popped back up on the United States presidential scene. And, and, what, and what, what Robert Kennedy has been talking about has been some amazing stuff. And, and to be very honest, I like him a lot. So two speeches that you've given over the years, kind of on the, the fly, that uh, I'm interested in mentioning and just seeing what comes to mind. The first one being from St. Louis, uh, right after the Michael Brown verdict was read and you're on stage. Yeah, yeah, I, was, I think that was the time when Elle was, you know, I was on the bus, I, I didn't really want to come off the bus and I think Elle and my wife compelled me to come off the bus. And meeting Elle and befriending him and forming a brotherhood has been one of the greatest things for my belief in humanity. It could be because we're, we're different races, different ethnicities. We come from two different places, one a liberal north, one a more conservative, you know, a, a liberal white northern, a conser- more of a conservative black Christian <laughs> background. And, um, you know, L compelled me to come out. He says, I'm just going to stand with you for you to say whatever 
might be moved on your heart to say. And I got out and I look at this audience that's full of me and LPs, full of black folks, white folks, men, women. And, and I know that in the moment I have to say something because people deserve the fuel that it takes to keep on believing, that people deserve real hope that's actionable. And that hope is oftentimes them. The fact that you're in this room together disproves that this country has a, a problem that's unfixable, that's gonna lead to an ultimate civil war and with the invasion of a foreign force like Red Dawn. So I believe in St. Louis because I've seen people there gather around hip hop that didn't look like each other, that weren't like each other, that didn't feel compelled to take the side of the state versus the people. And when it comes to the state versus the people, I'm always gonna lean toward the people more. The state is a social construct that people often use as a bludgeon. To, to, to use against other group of people. And I think that we have to stop allowing that. This country was started because it did not want to be under the rule and thumb of a monarchy. And we should not be willing to lay down for an oligarchy. I think that I am given the responsibility at times to speak because I have earned through the experiences I've had the wisdom to impart on people that could help at that time. What about your speech at the height of COVID discouraging people from destroying their community? Yeah, um, I was I talking- You didn't to, want to be there. No, hell no, I didn't want to be there. I was right before that, we got fish cooking and stuff. People are kind of you know, smoking in the parking lot, having a good time. And Tip comes up to me and says, you know, the, you know, the mayor called me that the demonstration is happening. It's starting to get dark, but as the demonstration is happening, other people are showing up. Black folks in Atlanta say other people is coded for they, aren't, they don't look like us. They're, they're here for other reasons besides the reasons of the black community, but they, they, other people are showing up and it's starting to get found. I said, well, well, she called the right person. She knew I was gonna go, test like, they knew better than the call. And I went back to drinking my way, eating a fish sandwich. And um, he moseyed along, Chinese clothes a few times. And he said, um, well, if you don't go, I ain't going. It's about an hour later, out of the even approached me about two, three times. And I'm just like, damn, you cannot allow your brother to go into battle and not be there with them. So I'm just like, well, you finally said what it was going to take to get me there. I'm here just like, damn, I, I'm walking, you know, walking down the hallway, a policeman and many of the policemen know me, you know, the younger policemen know me because my cousin is on the force. Older cops know me from when my dad was on the force. So I'm just like, I'm walking down this hallway, like, like they, they're still black men for the most part, in working class ways. So there's a, there's a level of expectation of encouragement, like do something good so we don't have to do what Kishi's yelling at us not to do yet. And Tip talks and I'm just like, oh, we out. And then he's just like, your turn. And I didn't get up. I was wearing a kill your master shirt. I didn't want to, that, that's not what I would have picked to go to. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm just like, and I just get up there and I tell the truth. I love and I respect you. I hate I don't have more to say. I hate I can't fix it in a snap. I hate Atlanta's not perfect for as good as we are. But we have to be better than this moment. We have to be better than burning down our own homes. Because if we lose Atlanta, what else we got? We lose an ability to plot, to plan, to strategize, to organize, and to properly mobilize. What I was telling people is that you cannot let your anger, deserved anger, in this time of being angry, let you get so angry that you burn down your own fortress in a time of war when people need a place to plan. Atlanta is truly a mecca for black people to have opportunity. It does not guarantee you're gonna win. It does not mean you will not meet failure. But when a big fancy car drives by,
both black, white children and other children, other ethnicities expect to see somebody look like me. And they don't expect for that person to sing and dance. When a big building in offices, people are never surprised when someone like me walks out of the door. This conversation ain't no more important because you white and no black. It's just normal. But you have to take advantage of the opportunity. So what I was saying to Atlantans at that time is, they ain't going to let you burn down West Midtown. They put too much money in development on that. They're not going to let you burn down North of Peach Street because that's big town, too much money. The only place to pivot would be left. And if you pivot left, you burn down Fine City, The Bluff, Dixie Hills, Collier Heights, Adamsville, Bankhead, The West End. Where do most black people in Atlanta live? You think I'm going to stand up on that podium and say burn this city down so they can do what they did in Detroit and let it starve for 60 years? at least remind black people, hey, this is still yours. You still own this. You can't just be something a fire destroys in the name of protest. You can't do that. Now, I understand the reasoning behind riots. It's the voice that I heard, like Dr. King said, I absolutely get it. But if you pivot and burn your own house down, what have you done? You've wasted an opportunity to use your house as a fortress to fight a war that's winnable by you. That's all I was saying. What's this I hear about you becoming more of a homebody by 50. I am, yeah, I'm, I, that's my goal. I have been allowed to be so outside and adventurous for most of my life, you know, and, and I'm becoming more of a homebody now, taking time to enjoy the things I work for, but- You wanna I, be on the road less. Yeah, I wanna be on the road less for more money. You know, I, you gotta do that part. I'm, I'm in the process of building businesses. Um, my wife and I's real estate portfolio in terms of having affordable housing still be something that happens here in Savannah, Georgia. That's a big thing. And the biggest thing, you know, next to, in, in terms of my personal thing that, what I, that I'm the tip of the spear on is, is growing the swag shops. I believe that the swag shop barbershops, the little three barbershop franchise that we have that we're about to grow into two or three more stores, I think is a hundred million dollar company. I, and, and not even that I think like, oh, it could be. No, no, I absolutely think that there's a need in my community for something cooler than, but comparable to, super cuts, great clips, sports clips. There's a cool in there that, that my shop has that those places don't. Barbershops are important in my community because they're social centers. They're tennis centers, they're golf centers, they're, they're Masonic temples for people who aren't Masons. They're places where men can congregate and discuss politics, sports, ideas. They're places where badass women can come get their eyebrows arched, get a haircut, and say, make sure that only guys don't have say. So what I wanted to see was that culture grow. How do you get it to 150 locations? There are 50 black markets from Buffalo, New York, to Miami, to Atlanta, Charlotte, Birmingham. I want to have three in each one. And I, and I want to have people that take the trade of barbering um, seriously, um, having the opportunity to work in a shop that is reflective of their talent and commitment and to service. So, you know, I would like to, for us to, you know, the next 10 years to be like the Truett family. If Kathy Truett started Chick-fil-A, still a privately owned family, family company. It's one of the biggest companies in the United States. I've seen it go into places like LA and start to dominate and after spending a lifetime in the South. And that's what I'd like to do with the swag shop. What's the status of Bankhead Seafood? My wife has got the building built. It's amazing. You know, my wife and, my wife and Crystal, um, who is who's Doug's wife over at Grand Hustle, she, they are amazing partners in, in terms of developing real estate and this restaurant, Bankhead Seafood. Tip and I own the restaurant, but they've done the work, so I'm interested in seeing that grow. So Helen Harden started this restaurant 50, over 50 years ago. This is where the entire West Side and people beyond would come for fish. But I remember I took my wife, because my wife is from a port city, my wife is from Savannah, Georgia. But my, um, two weeks later, 
I was talking to Tip. Well, I talked to Tip later that day after we went. We took a picture in front of the old sign. We, me and her just took a picture. And Tip had heard we had bought some property over on the, on the side. This is all where we grew up. This is all the west side of Atlanta. But I was like, man, something like else. Come along, like, let me know. He called me back a few weeks later and says, it's going to take these many hundreds of thousands. I'm down. If you want to do it, let's do it together. And we went in. But um, my wife and, and, and Crystal Phillips, they said, we're going to see this thing all the way through. Because me and Tip, just as rappers, could have sat on it. Like, we'll sit around waiting somebody offers four or five million dollars for it. You know what yeah. I mean? And um, they said, we're going to see this through because your neighborhood and the kids in the community deserve to see that y'all didn't leave. They deserve to be hired there. They deserve for their first job to be 10 minutes from their house and them not have to drive to Cumberland Mall to Chuck E. Cheese like we did and risk police harassment, pulling over four kids, going to the Chuck E. Cheese with uniforms on, searching our car for drugs. And Chuck E. Cheese. So I just want to, I want to serve as the same type of inspiration that the Russell family was for me. The same type of inspiration, you know, um, inspiration that, the, you know, the McKinney family was for me, that Dr. King's family was for me. That's what I seek to be. What did Outcast teach you about real estate? Buy it. And it, it, was, it wasn't just Outcast. Dre's mother, Sharon Benjamin, um, reminded me a lot of my mother. But man, I called her Miss B. I just, I loved her because she and Big Boy, help me understand that your artistry, what you do as an artist, if you parlay your money right, you can be more than an artist dependent upon a company supplying you. You can be an independent thinker and mover and a leader of your family, but you have to make certain sacrifices. And some of those sacrifices were when Big and Dre could have been in the Fortune 500 list, for it, they say no. They kept it very modest. They bought apartment complexes together. She would tell, you know, um, them about paying their taxes quarterly instead of yearly. You get a, you get, you get some reduction on that. And I just learned from her. What are your long-term goals with your investments? I'll put it like this: My great grandparents. I have the deed. N. H. Blackman and Truzella Blackman bought a farm in 1948. That farm is still in my family to this day. We are my sisters and I are part owners. At some point, that land needs to get developed, and that land has never been sold by my family. And I want, at some point, my great-grandchildren to say that my grandparent bought this when he was 38, and this is still in our family, and it is still producing income, and we have been able to do more than less. My goal for the swag shop is to build a $100 million company by way of brick and mortar, and my goal with Bankhead Seafood is to see it grow, if nothing else, into a regional franchise and the immediate, you know, get our restaurant up and running, have people get, get served for food and a level of service that they're accustomed to. I always tell people, I want to be more like the Chick-fil-A and Waffle House because you get good service. You get a smile at Chick-fil-A, you get good service at Waffle House. Sometimes you get a smile, sometimes you won't. But there are two businesses that were born out of Atlanta that I see thrive, and I would like for us to do that. And, in, you know, in terms of, you know, musically, I feel like with Run the Jewels and with Michael, you know, we could just keep going. I'd like to be like the Rolling Stones. I'd like to be an old man on stage, you know, rapping my ass off. So as part of the prep for this interview, I was reading some of the recent stories and it talked about, uh, you know, weight loss and how you've been yeah. uh, re really uh, co committed to that. I still do my three bowlers when I'm in the day and I've started back lifting with a guy named Al Claiborne. But, you know, really it's, it's hard when you're on the road. It's hard to, because it, it requires a certain amount of consistency. So adjust right. to eating habits. I've gotten down over 50 pounds now. I'm looking to get off another 50, 60. Al, I'm back wow. home. After I go to London, I'm back home for the rest of the winter, so I'll be lifting, you know, three, four days a week. So yeah, I still do it, but mainly it's, it's, the, it's the power hour. I get up and I can just be by myself. Mm -hmm. It's really one of the only times a day I'm just alone. 
So whether I'm at, you know, whether I'm at the track putting in my three miles or whether I'm in the gym just with Al, it's kind of the only alone time I have in the day. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm actually going to make more of a family event of the three miles a oh, day. Really? Yeah, just because my daughters, I like spending time with them and both of them have expressed interest in cutting a few pounds. So I'm like, there's no easier way to just adjust our eating habits. So let's eat something healthy together and let's just do a 5K. What made you realize you wanted to commit yourself to that? Start seeing my die. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, I, I'd like to be around a while, you know. Was, was there somebody's passing that just, made just, it really Just too many back to back to back. And it was all the stuff that's controllable. Where you talk about heart disease, you talk about diabetes, you talk about, you know, just 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 being too sedentary. Just it, it's just how I gotten too, you don't start realizing like you're eating off emotion. And then it's, some of it is not that you can't eat, it's the times you're eating because mm -hmm. you keep a bad schedule as a musician and stuff like that. So it's just kind of reframing. You know, and then I've always been active. So when it got to the point where I tweak a knee or something, like even though I've been a big kid, you know, for most of my life, I've never not been an active kid. But when it starts affecting my ability to be active on stage, I didn't like that feeling. And I mean, I'm just gonna keep going. You just, you just every day, man, it's, it's, it's simpler when you just look at it like, what am I gonna do today? So the, no, the day I know I'm gonna put, I know I'm gonna put a few miles in today. I know I'm gonna do light lifting for 20, 30 minutes today. I know I'm gonna only eat these things. You just see how I feel. And you, whatever I do that feels good, I keep doing. Do you find it's more motivating to continue as you see the results? Yeah, I have been. Like I've, I've, I hadn't gotten up to a 5X, I'm down to a 3X. Wow. You know what I'm saying? I'd like, to, I'd like to see what a 1X feels like. You know, but what motivates me ultimately is that I got four kids. And I like to I like to hang around with them as long as I can because I like them. You know, that's what motivates me. Man. Because your grandpa had a heart attack. Yeah, but he was he had one in '87, but he quit. Like he had one in '87 and he quit everything. You in quitting everything? Like, like he what? was a smoker. He smoked camels without the filters. He drank beer, and when the doctors, you know, told him that you know this will lead further than this, he just stopped. I never saw my grandfather pick up another cigarette or beer. But I saw my grandfather radically change his life because he wanted, he promised us, he, he said, he told my sister, he, they were crying, he said, I'll be here till y'all, all y'all graduate. Don't worry, he didn't die until my, my youngest sister, LaShonda, graduated. And he died on a fishing trip, doing something he loved doing. You know what I mean? So, you know, a storm came in out of nowhere, flipped their boat, you know, just by the time he had made it to the bank, his, his heart was giving out on him. But, but that's my man. What lifestyle changes did, did you make? Not just eating, eating less bread and that's that's prepped in a box and like, eating, like easy stuff as a musician you're running around you're eating where you can you're grabbing pizza after the show that type stuff now i just just give me um a chicken breast or a steak from the steakhouse early and just give me something green so give me some asparagus give me something it was interesting because i saw a few other entertainers do it like i came to mar after his show and he had chicken and broccoli you know what i'm saying and it was just i was just like oh, okay so this guy's old he's still he's still hangs around, smokes marijuana, and knows young girls, so maybe I should eat chicken and broccoli too. You know? <laughs> okay, on the uh, weed front, um, you, you said you've curbed that uh, a little bit as well, or like the time of day that you'll- Yeah, I don't smoke all day anymore, and I don't smoke like a quarter or a half ounce a day anymore. And what is that? Uh, ounce is 28 grams, a half ounce, 14 grams, quarter, seven grams. Right. Um, right now, I probably do about three, three grams a day. Okay. And that, you've noticed a positive difference? Yeah, you know, think more clearly, move more efficiently. Um, not that marijuana's helpful. Marijuana's more than helpful when I'm in the studio. It's just kind of, you know, it's a, for me, you know, if, but I, I don't do harder drugs, you know what I mean? I, I realize my mother had um, suffered an addiction, so I don't, I don't play with, you know, hard drugs. So I understand you don't sleep enough. Yeah, everybody says that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I get five good hours in a night, and 
a great night at seven. I'm okay. pushing as I'm as I'm getting healthier. I'm, I'm learning that that's a big part of health. That the rest part. And I've always felt so restless. Like right now, I'm talking to you. My fingers doing this. I just I've always felt restless, and not even in a bad way. Just like I want to be doing something, but I've never never felt a capacity or want to sleep a lot, but I'm understanding how important it is. So what are the typical hours you're awake? If I get to bed early, I get to bed at 2 a.m. and I get back up at 10. Okay. You know? And what if you, Um, how how often do you get to bed early and how often don't you? Not too often. I usually get to bed about four and I'm back up. I'm back up at 9, 30, 10 o'clock. And I've been told that up until 3 p.m., you can't confidently be sure you'll get a hold of you. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. D- take me through that. Uh, well, it, when I do get up, the first hour is your power hour. That's when you, you got to meditate, you got to see what the day's going to be. And that's the time I do take to move my body. Okay. I don't care if it's just, you know, doing, moving around the yard, the driveway, hitting the track or going to lift. But that first hour or two, I just need from me. And then, you know, I like to sit around and give things in the morning or afternoon like whether it's the people that I love or the things that I need to show, I like to give that a couple hours too. So, but you know, after two or three, I like moving. I like moving when traffic ain't moving. But two or three people at their jobs. Mm-hmm. So I can, I go see my therapist at three o'clock because I don't like moving in regular hours. I don't like, I don't like, um, it just never worked for me. And that's it for my chat with Killer Mike. To see video clips from our day in Atlanta, including a tour of his classic car collection, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And before you go, friendly reminder, leave us a rating and review. It helps a lot in growing this podcast, and we're always eager to get your thoughts. Thanks again for listening.